Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site. There you'll get to see me in person every week. I post a video on a subject that has, I don't know, sparked my mind into action. The last three, just as examples, have been very different one from another. Diverse, you would say. There's one about D-Day. There's one about buried Viking treasure. And the last one was about the push and pull of the great European continent. The drift of people endlessly on the move. Sure, you get the idea. The site's packed with history, current affairs and a whole lot more. And to get your hands on it, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It would be great to see you there. In the meantime, here is the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. down through the years have imagined themselves the Spanish at the time of the Armada Napoleon, Hitler they've all imagined themselves following that silvery path of the Thames into the heart of London In this podcast we're walking to the top of a hill with a view that takes your breath away Standing on the spot where one of Henry VIII's favourite hunting lodges once stood a place that this larger-than-life king kept for his mistress of the moment. In another age, the great architect Sir Christopher Wren built an observatory here for the mapping of stars and planets and time itself. Close by is a legendary soldier. And then hold your breath and jump from one hemisphere to another in the blinking of an eye. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. We stood in the middle of a city looking at the bare bones of the world as revolutionary ideas fizzed around our ears. Where are we this week? We're at the other end of the Long Island, uh, overlooking one of the greatest cities in the whole world, rubbing shoulders with history uh, and staring out at a cityscape whose buildings and occupants and events have helped to shape the whole world. We're at a place where the prime meridian bisects the planet where you can hop from one hemisphere to another. We're in Greenwich at the Royal Observatory. Specifically, though, beside the statue of General James Wolfe. I think this is a first for the love letter, Paul, because it's a statue. 
It's the statue of General James Wolfe that sits outside and sort of dominates uh, the plot of ground outside the Royal Observatory in Greenwich in London. It's a location that I love for family reasons. We love Greenwich. It's such a fun, interesting place. The market, obviously, there's great places to eat and shops to mosey about in. Uh, and we always go up to the observatory, though, the Royal Observatory. And the, the statue of General James Wolfe, we'll come to his story in a minute, but really, it's when you stand and you face in the same way as the statue, I think that it's the best view of London that you can get from anywhere. I think from up on that relatively high ground of the observatory, and you're looking out first and foremost over Greenwich. But London then appears, and it's sort of miniaturised to the point where it's sort of tabletop-sized, so that really without turning your head left or right, you can take in the whole vista of the city. And the, obviously the Silvery Thames that's winding into the heart of the city and the, the view is dominated of course nowadays by all the big modern glass and steel towers you know the one they call the walkie-talkie and the, the shard all those great modern edifices that have gone up in the last few years and I find that although you're there for Greenwich and you're looking out over the all the admiralty buildings and the college my attention is just sort of caught and held by the city it's just amazing because, you know, it's 2,000 years of history in London. A city that was at least, you know, it's Roman and would have been settled by the locals before the Romans. So you've got in excess of 2,000 years of history there and you can take it all in in a glance. And I find it hypnotic. There's so much genuine bona fide fantastic history up there too the Royal Observatory it's just dripping with significant history particularly to do with navigation and sort of underscoring the story of Britain's maritime history first and foremost there's the Greenwich Meridian it's the number one line that runs from pole to pole right round the the planet from top to bottom and, and, and back round again and it's the point where time stops and starts it's the beginning and ending of the world it's zero the Greenwich Meridian is zero so as you travel east or west you're moving relative to that line and it's represented at the observatory at Greenwich with a, a steel bar that's set into the pavement and so when you go to the observatory you'll see everyone getting their photographs taken standing, straddling the line. Because it means that you've got one foot in the, in the Western Hemisphere and one foot in the Eastern Hemisphere. So it's fun to straddle that, and you, you know, and to know that you're, you're where time begins and ends and, and where your relative position on the Earth counts from. What's the Royal Observatory building itself like? One of the things that you notice is the, is the clock that's called the Shepherd Gate Clock, and it's named for the guy that designed it. And it's the, it was the first clock, it is the first clock in the world, that counts and reveals Greenwich Mean Time. And it was the first time that members of the general public could go and see Greenwich Mean Time actually displayed on a clock. 
on the building as well there's the red time ball and it drops down a pole every day at one o'clock and that was there to show ships on the river exactly one o'clock you've also got and it's all connected these things all all tied together inside the museum is one of the watches that was designed and built and made by John Harrison it's known as H4 H for Harrison it was his fourth attempt at solving what had been up until that point an insoluble problem for navigation his clock for the first time told accurate time aboard a ship at sea now up until the Harrison clock, navigators, sailors, were only really confident of establishing latitude, which is to say their position between north and south. And they could do that by taking their position with a sextant, pointing at the sun at noon every day. They could work out from the angle how far north or south they had gone. So they knew, they knew how far down <laughs> the globe they had gone or how far up the globe they had come. But longitude, which is your distance east or west, was insoluble until you knew what time it was. You had to be able to tell what time it was at sea. And obviously, you know, earlier clocks, traditional clocks, they had like a pendulum. The swinging pendulum was part of the way in which, you know, there's a mechanism within a clock which is called the escapement. And the escapement is that part of the mechanism that allows the stored motive force, the coiled spring, the suspended weight, to be released drip by drop, tick by talk. But at sea, you've got all sorts of problems because the ship's moving. It's problematic. So there was no reliable way to know what time it was at sea. And that meant it was impossible to know how far east or west you were. So a major problem. There was just a lot of guesstimates going on. They were doing their best by, you know, making celestial measurements and, and the position of the sun and all the rest of it. But it was knowing the time at sea that was the crucial part of the problem. And it was John Harrison that solved that with the first reliable clock that had all sorts of clever inbuilt mechanisms within the pendulum and all the rest of it, all, all to do with metals that you know ex expanded and contracted relative to the heat and all the rest of it. He solved the problem, so navigators knew what time it was at sea. So the story of all of that is told at the National Observatory. And just to describe the history of the observatory itself, it occupies a place that was once a, a fortress built by a brother, a younger brother of King Henry V, he of Agincourt. And Henry VIII, Henry V's descendant, he uh, had the place as a hunting lodge. And it, because it was close by, it was close by Greenwich Palace, which was a royal residence, but it was his getaway place where he would install whoever was his mistress at the time. But then during the reign of Charles II, a decision was taken to build an observatory so that they could make better calculations and thereby draw better maps for navigation. And it was Christopher Wren who designed everything else. Christopher Wren suggested that that location up there on, on top of the hill at Greenwich would be the best place for it. And so work began in 1675. And then once the observatory was established, it was primarily home to scientists and cartographers who were making the necessary observations of the lights in the sky so that they could make more and more accurate maps. 
But timekeeping, I have to keep coming back to time. The Observatory is a story about time as much or maybe more than anything else. And it's genuinely fascinating that until this period, you know, until the, the latter part of the 17th century and into the 18th century, people in towns up and down the country and villages, they all kept their own time. There wasn't even any consensus about how many minutes there were in an hour. And people calculated the time really based on the position of the sun in the sky. You know how they always say, you know, that most men prefer their own opinions to anybody else's. Well, they also tend to prefer the time that they've got in the watch on their wrist. Well, in a time before wristwatches, in a time before time was standardised, people just had their own idea about what time it was during the day. In the modern world, we're so obsessed by time, aren't we? It's hard to believe that not that long ago, time wasn't standardised. No, it certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't agreed. So what actually made the difference was the advent of uh, the railway network. Uh, because once the, once the railways came and there were tracks running from every village, every town, in order to have a timetable, everyone had to agree what time it was. You know, if the train, if the train is, you know, if it's a train leaving London and heading north, if you're going to get on that train, there has to be nationwide agreement about what time it is. <laughs> it has to be the same time everywhere. <laughs> it's very difficult to get your head around it, but it was really the advent of trains that encouraged people to establish a general agreement about what time it actually was. So it, it was in 1847 that people agreed the necessity to be on the platform at the right time so that you could have a standardised railway service. It meant that at that point, Greenwich Mean Time, the time it was at Greenwich, the time it was on the Shepherd Gate clock was the time. OK, that was the time. Now, the Shepherd Gate clock was a slave, which is to say there was a master timepiece inside the building that just relayed the time out to the the shepherd clock on the gate of the observatory so that people could go and see it. And from 1852 onwards, the time on the shepherd master clock, which was, you know, that was designed by a, a clockmaker called Charles Shepherd. It was sent via the telegraph network to London from Greenwich. And from there it went on to Belfast, to Glasgow, to Edinburgh, all other cities besides. And by 1866, Greenwich Mean Time was being relayed to America via a transatlantic cable so that they were able to set their clocks relative to the time that it was in London. You get time zones, how far west you were of Greenwich Mean Time or how far east you were of Greenwich Mean Time. That's when they started adding and subtracting hours depending on whether you were east or west of the Greenwich Meridian. But the Greenwich Meridian was ex was beginning to be accepted as the zero point, which is amazing in itself. The world counts the time relative to, to Greenwich. That's like zero hour, and everybody else sets their clocks depending on how many hours east or west they are from that position, which I, mean, I just find that absolutely fascinating. And then in 1884, Delegates from 25 countries met in Washington for the International Meridian Conference. And it was there that they, de they decided that they would have to agree at what point on the globe the nations of the world 
would count zero degrees of longitude from. And by that point, and for years, the USA had been using, they were already using Greenwich. But by the end of the conference, all but two of the 25 countries had accepted that it was Greenwich. And two decided not to go that way. And it was Brazil and France. It, it would be France, wouldn't it? France, France, France and Britain. Always prickly relations. So they abstained from it. But it was too late. That was the die was cast. And, it, from, and from that point on, from the time of that conference in 1884, Greenwich has been the centre of the world for time and place. And so when, you, when you're standing at Greenwich, when, when you're standing on that line of steel in the pavement, you know exactly where you are and what time it is. Because <laughs> it's, it's the start. I just love it. So that's the, that's the real, that's the, that's the official reason for being impressed by the Royal Observatory. It's amazing that this building, designed by Christopher Wren, was at the forefront of science for so long. Yes, 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 definitely. Because by that point, Britain was starting to reach out into the wider world. It was already interested in, and becoming increasingly obsessed with things maritime and things navigational. Not all that long after, as you get to the time of James Cook that we've already been talking about. You know, by the second half of the 18th century, James Cook is out there mapping and navigating, but he was inheriting what was already an established growing obsession to make better maps. I find it quite existential. There was a growing determination to find out how we fitted into the cosmos. Our position in the solar system and the galaxy, scientific minds were increasingly paying attention to where we were. And there was more and more of an understanding that, that in order to understand where we were, we needed to know when we were. So you've got this sort of parallel interest in time and place. And it is, it's literally radiating out from the, from the observatory at Greenwich, where by the latter part of the 19th century, that was where the world was counting from. And then you come out of the Royal Observatory, come out of the, you know, the walled enclosure of it, and there's this statue, and it's Major General Sir James Wolfe. It's only actually been there since 1930, and it's a gift to the people of Britain from the people of Canada. And as I've already said, you know, apart from anything else, if you just stand beside the statue and look towards London, you know, you're just greeted with this wonderful view. Wolfe was born in Kent, 1727. He was a son of a soldier, Lieutenant General Edward Wolfe. And the, the family moved to uh, an address on the edge of Greenwich Park in 1738, hence the statue being located there. And James is an interesting character in many ways, but to someone like me, given what he became, which is to say a leader of men, he was physically unprepossessing. He was a bit of a weakling when he was a child. He was always ill. And, you know, little was expected of him because he was poorly and slight. But by his own determination, he decided to follow his father into the military. And so he was commissioned into the army at 14. Imagine that, 14. He first came to everyone's attention during the Jacobite Rebellion in, uh, you know, the 1745. He was at Culloden. He came to prominence there as, as part of the red-coated force that, that suppressed the Jacobite Rebellion. 
But really, he was made legend. He was made, well, his story was made immortal during the Seven Years' War, which was between France and Britain, and specifically at Quebec uh, in 1759. And there had been months of deadlock, an immovable object of the French, and, and what turned out to be an unstoppable force of, of British. And what Wolfe did was he had his men launch a, a kind of a, 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 a secret advance to the heights of Abraham, high ground, and they had to climb up cliffs to get up onto the high ground of the heights of Abraham so that they could launch a surprise attack. So it's a classic, classic tactical stuff. During the battle, Wolfe was shot and mortally wounded just at the moment of victory, just as it was becoming clear that he was turning the tide of battle he was shot and mortally wounded and his, his opposite number, the French commander the Marquis de Montcalm, he was also killed so the leaders of both forces died in that battle on the heights of Abraham but believe it or believe it not it was a descendant of the Marquis de Montcalm who was there at the unveiling of the statue relations having become significantly better by the 20th century so there he is the great soldier that he was the stone plinth that statue sits on, it's actually pockmarked quite clearly and it's uh, shrapnel from German bombing in 1940. So there's there's like craters knocked out, chipped out of the, of the plinth and it's, it's bombing runs in the vicinity of Greenwich uh, during World War II. He looks the part, he, he's a man of his time, he's got a belted coat, a long cloak and a tricorn hat, you know, one of those three-cornered hats. Uh, and he's got a telescope in one hand, which is good given that he's at the Royal Observatory. And the other hand is jauntily placed on his hip. As a statue, it's, it's fairly standard fare, but it, it's only given relevance, really, if you know his story. But as I say, for me, it all comes... Although I'm fascinated by the, the John Harrison clocks, I'm fascinated by the Meridian, I'm fascinated by the fact that time and place begins and ends at Greenwich. But really, of the many times that I've been up there... It's the view, and it's also... Wolf says something to me about the character of these islands. These islands, you know, to which I'm sending this, this love letter, because although he became a military figure, nobody expected it of him. He was physically weak to begin with, but by the force of his personality, by his own determination, he became much more than he might otherwise have been, and he overcame his frailties. You know, if you look at our archipelago of islands off the northwest coast of Europe, it doesn't look like much. It's a tiny little spot, really, a spot of dry land, you know, out on the edge. And who would look at that on the map and think that so much achievement would have come from that little place? Well, likewise, if you'd, if you'd met Wolf as a boy, you may well not have thought that he would amount to much. And who would have thought that Britain would amount to very much? But it did. It did through ambition and aspiration and strength of character and all the rest of it. It became what it is, and there's something even more moving about Wolf in that he was a fatalist, and all his life he believed that he wouldn't last longer than he was needed. He was one of these characters, a bit like Abraham Lincoln, a bit like JFK. He had a rendezvous with death. He suspected he would die young, and he suspected that he would only live as long as his country needed him. And according to the legend, I mean, when, it, when they were actually travelling, him and his men, in the boats, down the, the St Lawrence River, in the dark, as they were sneaking up on the French, 
he quoted a line from Thomas Gray's elegy written in a country churchyard, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. So he was he was he had a premonition about his own end. And that view that he looks out on, it was it was subsequently painted by JMW Turner. The same vista, p- painted from the same location that's now dominated by that statue. And it just draws you in. And I find it a profoundly moving location because there's something vulnerable about London from up there. Because it's small, or it's made to appear small, and although it's 2,000 years plus of history of triumph and disaster and good times and bad and everything we know about London, from up there you can take it all in, in one glance, and it's been coveted by so many people, would-be conquerors down through the years have imagined themselves, the Spanish at the time of the Armada, Napoleon, Hitler, they've all imagined themselves following that silvery path of the Thames into the heart of London. And it looks defenceless. And it looks like somewhere that needs our attention paid to it. Just because London has lasted as long as it has, and just because so much history is there, you could lose it. There's a vulnerability to it, and you get a sense that you need to keep an eye on it. And there's something, I think, meaningful about the fact that it's a general, a soldier of the calibre of Wolfe, who's up there looking out over London, as though casting a careful eye over that place that matters so much. Magical, mysterious and steeped in legend. Known as the Fairy Hill of the Caledonians, or to some, the Hill of the Constant Storm. It keeps watch over the wilderness of Rannach Moor. Our ancient ancestors have always looked to make sense of the lights in the sky above them. Here, high in the mountains, scientists took a step forward towards measuring the weight of the world itself. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And why not write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends? For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market